A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 176 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zune, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Roman, and with me, like the mystery surrounding Jarrell, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuities, Mr. Nathan B. Butler. Hey, everybody. Heck, I think that the mysteries surrounding that character was just the name pronunciation because I ran across a pronunciation key in one of the letters pages, and it's not Jeriel like I thought. It's Jeriel, which just, you know, completely screws up my ability to pronounce any of this stuff because it's A-E-L. So why is it that A-L like every other time it appears in Star Wars? It's Savage's fault. I blame Savage and Lucas. Or, or is it Lucas or Lucas or Lucas? I don't even know anymore. Oh, if he's Dang a it, George. <laughs> he's a clone. He's got to be Lucas. You know, you got to have that, yeah. that thousand different vowels in there. Well, so, between yeah. Han, and, Han and Leia, I mean, there's the Han, 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 or the Leia, 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 Leia. <laughs> I, I just can't keep track, man. Damn it, George. You can write this. <laughs> but nobody can even pronounce the names. You know, to paraphrase. Harrison Ford there a little bit more snarkily. Fortunately, this is not stuff that is uh, Lucas presented. It is Legends continuity. It is EU stuff that we're looking at this time, continuing on from something that we had left off on quite a while back, although I got a feeling we're not going to have nearly as much enthusiasm with this part of the series that we've been looking at, just sort of because of the nature of where it is, which I guess we'll delve into a little bit in our non-spoiler section. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode we explore Volume 7 of Knights of the Old Republic comic series by John Jackson Miller and his team from Dark Horse Comics. We're going to cover the first half of the trade paperback this episode, covering Profit Motive Parts 1 and 2 and The Faithful Execution, as well as give you our spoiler-free rundown. And next week we're going to wrap up with the second half, all three parts of Dueling Ambition and the covers. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Wow, this volume, it's... It's the next one after Vindication, right? So we spent a while building up Knights of the Old Republic as we went through and talked about it here on the show. We built up all the way from commencement up through Vector and the game-changing nature of what happened in Vector leading up through Vindication. And finally, Zane Carrick has proven his innocence. He has cleared his name and basically ended Vindication with the idea that he was just going to continue working with the crew that he's been working with, Marn and uh, Jarrell and all of them. And not be a Jedi, basically, for the most part, anymore. And that's where we left off. 
But that pretty much was the end of the big arc that the series had been on since the very beginning. So in a lot of ways, this new arc is the beginning of something new. It's picking things up and going for story threads that had been laid out a little bit earlier in the series that hadn't come to fruition yet with Vindication that are sort of secondary plot threads to build up towards another conclusion, another bigger arc. The difference here, though, being that with Vindication, going all the way back to Commencement, they had about 35 issues to build up this massive, groundbreaking, interesting story with what happened to Zane and the murders and why they happened and the prophecies and all that stuff. Now, they got about 15 issues, right? Less than half that to build a new arc or to, to bring to fruition another arc that just... I gotta say, is not gonna wind up being as bombastic, as entertaining, as interesting as the build-up to Vindication was. Uh, it's sort of the summer school session of Knights of the Old Republic, whereas the main school year is already over. Another way to look at this, perhaps, would be to take the Babylon 5 example. Uh, great sci-fi series, one of the best that's ever been on television, designed from the beginning to have all five seasons of a prearranged five-season saga done as sort of one book or one chapter in a broader story. Each one building things up, foreshadowing, dropping hints, building and building and building. Problem was, that five-year story was basically going to be cut short when they realized they were going to be canceled after their fourth season. So they took everything they were going to do in seasons four and five and compressed it down into a very bombastic, crazy season four. And then they got picked up by another channel that not only gave them TV movies and whatnot, but also a fifth season. But they'd already done everything they wanted to do, for the most part, for Season 5, back in the back half of Season 4. And you got this fifth season, there is very much the denouement, the epilogue, the hey, here are some plot threads that we could use and flesh out, but the big stuff's already passed. You know, it's not going to be nearly as grand as what we saw in the previous seasons, because there's just not that much left to do. That's what this feels like for Knights of the Old Republic. This series could very much have ended with Vindication and gone out on an incredibly high note. It doesn't end on a bad note when we finally get to 50. Uh, the epilogue, the Knights of the Old Republic War, is pitiful. Um, but it winds up just never feeling like it reaches the height of where Vindication had left it. And in that sense, it, you know that you're heading for a weaker ending, and it really does feel like a fresh start. Maybe this could have been sort of a Knights of the Old Republic Volume 2 series, and it wouldn't have felt this way because it wouldn't have felt like they were trying to continue a series that had already reached its high point in this sort of way. But instead it doesn't. doesn't help that it starts out with art by Bong Dezo, who draws people with faces of mashed potatoes, and half the time you can't tell what the hell's going on in the panels that he's drawing. Um, there's just so much about this trade paperback of Knights of the Old Republic that does not work for me. It's three stories in six issues that are trying to basically lay down certain hints for what's to come, but you don't actually have anything that feels like it's really pushing in the direction of what's to come until the last two or three pages of the last of these six issues. The rest of it feels like a lot of filler just to be able to fit in maybe a handful of panels that actually matter in the grand scheme of things. Given that we're already on issue number 36 of this series, it feels like a real step backwards at this point. Even commencement in some of those earlier stories that were there just to seed in things for the future felt like they had more substance than these did. Uh, this is by far my least favorite trade paperback, aside from war, of all 
of Knights of the Old Republic, unfortunately. Which is interesting. I mean, for me, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I, I think, though, when you say this might have worked as a volume two better, I, I think you have the heart of a question. I was kind of wondering around, you know, how long was John Jackson Miller planning to go with this? How much green light did he have? Because I know around this time, this is when they started to to think about stepping back from these ongoing series, moving towards that shift for let's go with six issue arcs, uh, you know, and war was was kind of like, I, I don't know, it fell into that quasi position of where you know it seemed like it was something added on and it also felt like it was like the first of that shift like well well we can have the ending of kotor kind of wrap up at 50 and then we could do our first arc like that and really wrap it up but that's a separate thing but you you question though where they were going to be going with this because when i read it i really enjoy the fact that like you know we get in this trade we get a, a window of all the different art styles common to the series yeah bonk dezo's got his stuff and i will put some pictures up on the post for everybody wondering why we're so nitpicky because there are some pictures of Griff and I will show you I think they're all on one page and the character just morphs and morphs and morphs it's just very odd uh, but beyond that though I really I liked what it did for a lot of the characters like the shift for Jarrell's character it is definitely like you said a jumping point uh, I like that it adds mystery to everything that what's going on what are they up to uh, a lot of TV shows you know you'll go away for a summer break and come back and like six months of jump forward or something like that this is basically what's happened to a degree I believe it's like a couple weeks I think we've gone three weeks or something like that in the future Zane's done something we don't know what it is. He's he's got his own plans, you know, and and he's starting to see through things too. Like like Roland for the first time, he's starting to question, you know, what's going on with Roland? Uh, you know, there's all these different aspects at play that are starting to build up on the second half of Kotor. So I, I think in a lot of ways, you you may be onto something with that. With this, definitely does feel like it's a mark of a second half of the Kotor series. Uh, but but for me, I, I liked what it was doing. Yeah, it did have the fluff and filler kind of feel overall. Uh, but I think that it had enough of the little subtle nuances that added to the story and where we were going and stuff. I like, especially when you think about the, the overall ending, when it ended, I was really, by that point, I was really intrigued with what was going on with this character, what was going on with Jarrell's character, her angle with the slavers and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was a very perplexing situation for Zane to find himself in because, in a sense, the girl he loves now has a dark side. Uh, and plus, there's the mystery of all of a sudden now she's using the Force. Uh, you know, so there's all these little angles at play that for me, like, I, I think that that's why I enjoyed this so much was because it was answering little bits of questions while still keeping the mystery alive. And for me, that's that aspect of what John Jackson Miller does where I'm kind of like on the fence. Sometimes I really like it. And sometimes I'm like, I don't like to wait so long. So it was nice to get some of that stuff feeded out right now while I was still like, well, what's coming next? Yeah, to make the Babylon 5 example again, this is like the episode with the alien healing device, right? It shows up in an episode in season one and then disappears. You don't expect it to come back again. And then way late in a later season, it comes back and it's a major plot point again. It was just seeded back in an episode that basically was filler. I think that you could take this set of stories, this trade paperback worth, these three arcs, and if you were to leave out everything but Jarrell and Roland, and a couple of lines here and there from Zane, nothing else matters. The rest of it winds up being, uh, again, scenery to a degree. And sometimes impressive, sometimes not scenery if we're talking about the artwork. It just, it's just, it feels like it, there's too little there for as far as they are in this series. Uh, and it doesn't help that in some respects it plays it too subtle. 
right? I mean, we get the, the well, you know, well, Jarrell can use the Force type of thing, you know, you know, you need to train her, blah, 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 that type of stuff. And that'll show up time to time. It's not something that necessarily plays into every issue of this whole thing, or at least not in any big way. And one of the things we get in the last of these arcs that we'll talk about when we get to our next episode covering the back three of this is this whole, well, well, it seems like Jarrell has been very sullen lately. I wonder why. And when Zane finally asks her, it's a huge revelation at the end of that story. Problem is, it's played so subtly that she's being sullen that I think someone who is reading these month to month is going to forget that she's even acting like that by the time you get to that big revelation and be like, oh, she was acting sullen? Really? I thought she was just being quiet. Uh, it works better as a trade paperback. It works much better knowing where the series is going over the next few arcs, because at least we can appreciate the seeds being planted. Yeah. I read these at the time that they came out, though, and I really wondered whether or not this series had any life left in it. Fortunately, it is building up to something. It's just doing so in such a, I don't want to say a meticulous way, but such a subtle way in seeding these things in, that again, it really feels like the beginning of a brand new series. And it doesn't help that any effects of vindication are completely brushed aside for this for these arcs. There's almost no mention of any ramifications coming out of vindication other than, oh yeah, Zane's been cleared. Okay, but what about all the crazy crap that went down in the last few issues? Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. As a Officer Barbrady would say, nothing to see here. <laughs> Well, you know, you point out another thing about the, the whole singles versus trade aspect, and you're right. I think in the, the aspect here that most fans are going to be lucky is that it is Legends. It's something that's not going to be continuing to. Uh, I think overall, I think that's the problem with comics in general as the, as the model. You know, you've got the two aspects. You know, how do you keep the people reading it as singles entertained and wanting the next one while telling that big overall story? Because, you know, we sit down here, we read these trade paperbacks, and sometimes it's the first time we've read them since singles, and they're usually a much better story. And I'll tell you, when I was reading this one, I got the feel of how Tales of the Jedi feels. You know, I felt like this was finally something really old and really hard to find kind of thing, and a really good story of a classic era. Granted, it's not that old, but now that it's Legends and now that it no longer counts as canon, I have that feel when I go back to it. It's, it's got that mystery involved. You know, the same kind of mystery I felt when I was hunting down those old early tales of the Jedi comics. Those were the ones I, I didn't have when I was younger. Uh, so it's interesting the angles at play there. I think, though, now that it is Legends, I think most of the people that are going to take this ride, I think you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck out of it than you would have at the time you were reading it while it was coming out. Yeah, there was a little nostalgia and a really cool angle of, oh, wow, when, when the twists were revealed while you were, you know, with the finger on the pulse of fandom. But now that that's gone and passed, now you can just sit back and enjoy this for the overall ride it was. And I think that's kind of why I really enjoy it, because I... I keep looking at the overall picture, and I like that this is just setting up so many things. I like where it came in. Yeah, there are some angles, like you said. Like I, I know with New Jedi Order, that's one thing that really takes me off. It's like after the New Jedi Order, all those groundbreaking things were just shoved off to the side. So, you know, having something similar like that with Vindication, while irksome, the time gap kind of gave me the feel like we didn't need to go back to most of that stuff, aside from like the big political stuff that are really impacting things. Like their comments about, you know, Roland being a Mandalorian still and people not trusting him and, you know, the war going on right now and how Zane's kind of doing his own thing. And I like how that too sets up with the overall theme of what's going on in this era. I mean, right now, the video game KOTOR is, is pretty much starting to really kick off. You know, I mean, uh, we're all but about to wake up on the, on the indoor spire, I believe. 
Uh, you know, I mean, that's the, the the meshing, the folding of the fingers that I really get a kick out of with the old legend stuff. I mean, we do still have, what, seven years left to go, though, before we get to the events of Knights of the Old Republic. And it seems like that the context of this era has, for the most part, been set aside in these stories. It will eventually build back up again as we think more about Demigol, the Mandalorians, in subsequent arcs. But in this case, it's very much a, a now for something completely different for at least this trade paperback. So at this point, then, what you're saying, the KOTOR game is still, like, the Mandalorians are, are doing a seven-year ramp-up to that point? Well, remember, I mean, you've got the build-up of the Mandalorians, and then you've got Revan and the uh, the Revanchists going together against them, against the Jedi's orders, and then eventually mm. uh, Revan and Malak disappearing, meeting the Sith Empire, as we find out later in the Revan novel, and then eventually coming back, and then once back, having Revan being defeated and brainwashed or memory wiped and all that stuff before we get to the beginning of the KOTOR game. There's a lot of stuff that's uh -huh. discussed in the KOTOR games that is now happening or about to happen, but the game itself doesn't start until 3,956 years before the Battle of Yavin, and this story is set 3,963 years before, so we still have seven years to go. Oh, okay. That's one thing about that that whole Mandalorian War that I loved and, and yet was confused by was that whole angle of how long into the past it went. You know, yeah, because by that time, you know, Revan had already fallen. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense. I do like the fact that, you know, while that's going on with the core worlds and stuff, you know, you get that look as uh, meanwhile in the galaxy. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So we start a little less than a month after the events of Vindication, and we start at an auction. All right, we're at Metallus 3, and there's an auction going on. It's, it's kind of a weird idea, but think about economic futures, oil futures and that type of thing that we have today. What basically is happening is an auction for things like mineral rights, transport rights, and whatnot for planets that are so far away that for the most part they haven't really been surveyed to any large degree. So it's sort of a, what would you bid for mineral rights to this planet? And you're sort of gambling on the idea that it's going to have enough minerals to make your purchase worthwhile when you eventually get there and, be, and are able to exploit it, which is probably not going to happen until the Mandalorian Wars are done. It's kind of an interesting, unusual take. And I will say it's kind of funny where it starts out, because they're describing a planet that's up for bid. There it is, my friends. The treasure of the future today. Gas giant in the Ivax Nebula, a NOAT sector. Approximate diameter, 220,000 kilometers. Spectral analysis reveals exceptionally high quantities of Tabana gas. Sure to be a miner's paradise. I can see the floating cities now. You get what he's talking about, right? I had to look it up. I, mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was like, is that, is that Bespin? Is he yep. talking about Bespin right now? He's talking about Bespin. So it's kind of cool that they got that angle on it because at this point Bespin uh, hasn't been exploited yet, which is kind of cool. Uh, as the auction goes on, we find that there is a Cheb, right? One of the slaves of a Chevin. Chevin being like Efantman, the big-faced guys. Chevs being sort of the, um, the whitish, tannish, usually bald servants of that species. Uh, there's a Chev there named Sitiper, or Sipiter. And Sipiter is the one who's sort of like the, 
the guy running the auction for the guy that actually runs things, Nunk, or uh, No Neck, as they sometimes call him, who is the uh, Chevin, who is over everything, a blue Chevin kind of in the background here. And Sipiter is meeting with Professor Griffamarn, who, of course, is Marn Hieroglyph there in disguise. It's a con. It's another of these uh, swindles that the crew is trying to pull off under Griff. This is probably the worst for me, the art, was Griff himself. Like, I don't know. Like, he's got a, a troll from from uh, Harry Potter kind of look to him at times. Like, I'm waiting for him to go, put it in the back corner, Potter. Like, <laughs> I just don't know what's going on with that character. And I have to admit, in, in a new world with new canon, can we ditch the Shevin characters? I cannot stand Effentmon, this no-neck type character. Please let that just be like a Yoda species where that was only one character in one film and we never see them again. That is a, a crap model. I cannot stand it. Every time it shows up in any comic, I'm like, oh, come on. This is the, I mean, these creatures are dumber than the, than the, the little BIM characters or whatever the heck they were. That Those characters from Tatooine Ghost that were harassing Han and Leia, the squibs. God, I couldn't handle the squibs. They were just as bad as these, these Chevron no-necks, whatever the heck they are. I just, uh, yeah, the Chevin characters. And the whole aspect of Chevin and Chevs, and, and uh, yeah, that's a character species you can just get rid of in, in canon. I don't think anyone's going to care. And the two people that do, in this case, I'm sorry, guys, but you're just going to have to sit on your tongues. <laughs> uh, so we find that this new, really ugly, cobbled-together-looking ship, um, this uh, gem-mining ship called the Hot Prospect, which is now... The ship of the crew that we've been following, Marn and them, uh, winds up showing up, and supposedly these these uh, gangster type pirate people show up, uh, working for the indigenous species of the planet Italbos, who are annoyed that rights were sold to their planet, only they're already living there, and it turns out that oh, it's got a lot more minerals than anybody ever thought would be the case, and the idea is that they want to have a new auction where the proceeds are going to go at least part, to the people who actually live there, etc., etc., except it's all a scam because these so-called pirates are Roland and Jerail, uh, who have shown up. Roland being, of course, the uh, Mandalorian who's got some questions of his identity that have been slowly building up throughout the series. We'll eventually figure out who he really is. And then we have Jerail, who has been with the crew really since the beginning, uh, whose mentor Camper is now gone, and who is now... Uh, for whatever reason, a target of fascination for Roland, which is something we'll eventually discover the meaning behind as we slowly work our way through the series here. But it's a scam. It's a complete scam. And it's another instance of that ridiculous artwork. Uh, you get to the page on which uh, it ends with uh, a box that basically says, you know, Professor, why not? I do study law, blah, 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 right? If you're looking at the single issues, it's the page that's opposite the Dark Knight Blu-ray uh, advertisement. But another example of where Bong Dezo's art makes me shake my head. The bottom left panel has a stressed out Sipiter doing the whole yeah, reaching up and grabbing his collar with a finger and kind of moving it while you see sweat, you know, plopping around his face. And there's a shot of Griff who's apparently speaking all highfalutiny. But when you look at it, I don't know about you, Mark. I had a hard time realizing in that shot that I guess those are supposed to be his nostrils, not his eyes. Yeah, his nostrils are off the hook all the way through this. Like, Bong Dezo was smoking on the bong when he was doing this or something because 
the character's face just morphs and she's I believe in earlier episodes we talked about how Griff's kind of like got a gorilla look to him at times. And I don't know what's going on because the, the one in the middle where he's like, wonderful young lady, I should like to represent you. Like his nozzle, his snout is faced towards the screen and the way his mouth's open and his, his teeth are all weird shaped and stuff. He's got the one long claw sticking out. But the way his mouth's opening up, his his snout, he looks like a Leviathan on Supernatural. He's nothing but mouth and teeth. There's no eyes, no ears, nothing. Just that snout and the open mouth. And it's like, ah, those are the moments. And yeah, it sounds like we're going to be nitpicking the heck out of him. I'm going to slide him in so you guys can understand what we're talking about here. But there are little moments in here that I'm okay with. Like, I like the design of the lightsaber, how it's got a chain coming off the back of it. I was like, oh, that was kind of interesting. But... Yeah, there's a lot of weirdness going on in a couple of these panels. But I think that that's the one cool thing about this is that we don't stick to this style. We eventually move on and we get kind of like an example of a few different styles. So we're not locked into one for too long. Right. It's one artist per story arc, but this trade paperback has basically three story arcs in it. One that's two issues, one that's one issues, and then one that's three by the time it's done. So as we're moving along with this first issue here, basically it turns out that Nunk... Plarvin, who is the Chevin, who's running this operation with the Chev Sipiter being sort of his uh, his right-hand man and actually being the one to do most of the day-to-day operations and all, he recognizes that this is Griff. He knows this is a swindle. He's not being taken in by it, which is kind of surprising, and decides that he is going to do something about it. So we have Roland and Jarrell and Griff meeting in Griff's quarters, only for them to be attacked by goons loyal to Plarvin, loyal to Nonek, and they're able to break in and apparently manage to capture Jurel and Roland. It's really kind of hard to see what the hell is going on because the artwork is just, it's all over the place. There's a point at which Roland, uh, I guess this is the, the page that ends with the uh, the droids coming out of the floorboards, uh, coming up to get Griff. They're like... There's like this moment of he's I guess he's supposed to be like shooting and then shooting and then shooting and shooting and we're supposed to be seeing it as it's happening like as a blur like he's moving the the blaster upward through the panel and shooting at every point where there's a big burst of electricity but it looks like he's just holding something that has this weird like wave of energy coming out of it because you don't get a sense of motion it's just all of a sudden this blaster somehow has energy dissipating all over the freaking place. He does that a lot with the blaster shots, where I guess he's trying to capture motion, and instead it just looks like somehow something is shooting lightning instead of a blaster bolt. Um, and then by the time we get to uh, Jarrell apparently being knocked out, again, hard to tell what exactly is going on. I guess she's knocked out. Roland gets some kind of like like energy lash around him and gets knocked out. That, at least you can sort of tell that he's knocked out, because he's halfway in the floor and there's smoke coming out of his mask. Um... And then all of a sudden, ta-da, to take out the droids that are there with them, it's Zane Carrick. Not really looking like Zane except for his clothes, but Zane Carrick there, your late partner, and you're in over your head again. Looks like vacation's over. So Zane has showed up to supposedly save the day. Last we saw, Jarrell got knocked out, apparently, and Roland was on the ground surrounded by these droids. Then Zane shows up, and we hear all the droids being wiped out off-screen, so to speak, off-panel, which is thunks and zashes and such. And then we see him standing there with Griff, talking as if the day has been saved. And yet, somehow, 
at the beginning of the next issue, Jeraylen Rowland had been captured and taken away. Really? How? This reminds me of the way that they did the uh, Dooku captured and Gungan general episodes of the Clone Wars, right? Where you get to the end of one, and very specifically, Obi-Wan and Anakin manage to switch their drinks to make sure they don't get drugged and knocked out. And then in the next episode, where are they? They've been drugged and knocked out. And there's no <laughs> way anybody ever explains how in the hell that happened. You needed a webcomic to be made to explain how they still got knocked out and taken prisoner when they specifically avoided it in the previous episode. Sadly, there is no story taking place between issues 36 and 37 of Knights of the Old Republic. So we just get this incongruous thing where Zane apparently saved the day and saved them, but not really, because they were apparently, what, dragged off... Uh, dragged out of the room off panel in the few split seconds between when Griff is getting his butt kicked and when Zane comes in to try to save them. If there's all kinds of slashes when Zane is saving them, what droids is Zane attacking if the other droids that were there were already carrying off the two prisoners? Ugh. See, when I look at that, I don't think that the droids were carrying off the other two prisoners so much as the, the assassins themselves. Like, you know, the one goes, got him, but don't be as easy with the little one. And, you know, you see Griff in the background. He's like, stay back. I I get the feeling that that hall is longer than that panel is showing. Kind of like the job of the hut, you know, door scene where from the outside it doesn't look so big. And then on the inside, you're like, oh, that's a pretty big room. I get the feeling that it took them a while to walk down to where he was at. And while they were doing that, Roland and, and Jarrell were, were drug off by the others. But, yeah, as soon as those assassins break through, that's where it gets chaotic to follow the action. You know, you got the switch weapons whole page where... Like, Jarrell's doing some kind of flip. It's like, suddenly it looks like there's zero G in the room. Like, that that's, I think, that's the part I have the hardest time when, when the panels do that. Because everybody looks like they're floating. It's like, there's no gravity to the situation anymore. Uh, like, the angle and the arc of how Roland's throwing the lightsaber versus how Jarrell's flipping over and then catching it and then turning and activating it. It's a little confusing. The blaster bolts, as you, as you mentioned and stuff. But there's... As far as I can tell, there's only the three droids that come through the floor. I don't think we get more than those three. Uh, but granted, I think that what we see is when the droids come through the floor, Jarrell trips on them uh, and then goes down onto the ground. Because um, that, that's the other odd thing about it all. It's like, you know, there's so much action so fast. And like the last thing you see of Jarrell, she's got the lightsaber in hand and is, is running. And the droids come up between her and Griff. Uh, so it does look like she's kind of like running backwards and trips over them as they're still coming through the ground. But... Yeah, there's there's definitely some moments there where you're like, wait, what's going on? And I think it gets back to that aspect of, you know, reading it in the trade. You're able to see these holes where the action for the single reader kind of really built up to a climatic end. You know, the, you're late, partner. You know, that whole scene looks like our vacation's over. Great ending for an issue. Not so great in the middle of the trade because, yeah, you're kind of like, well, whoa, what happened with the action? But, yeah, at the end of that single issue, you're like, oh, what's going to happen next? And then you got to wait a week or two weeks to a month to find out, well, nothing. Yeah, the only explanation we get for that bizarre ending, or the only thing that that tells us that they were at least taken away, is in the opening crawl, so to speak, of the second issue here. It says, uh, the attackers spirit away Griff's allies, Jarrell and Roland. You're like, oh, really? I don't remember that in the last issue, and I remember that being jarring at the time. And still just as jarring today. But, whatever. Apparently, Jarrell and Roland get taken away when Zane shows up to save them, you just can't tell that at all by what we get in the first issue. Whatever. So we start the second issue, issue number 37 of KOTOR, with them being herded down a hallway by Sipiter and Nunk, the mastermind and his henchmen. And 
when Jarrell tries to escape, it leads to a brief brawl in which, again, going back to the artwork that you're just like, what? Nunk slams his hand down, and all of a sudden there are all these little tiles flying all over the place. And you can only tell what it is by looking at the next panel and comparing it to the panel on the first page. Apparently Nunk was, in trying to stop them, slams the ground and all the floor tiles go flying or something? Yeah, they're trying to make him a powerful villain. And I'm sorry, with a character that looks like a mix between an elephant and one of those mystics from uh, the Dark Crystal, like it just ain't working, man. The Uru Mystics and the Skixies. Nice. Nice <laughs> reference there. So, of course, Zane and Griff are going to have to find a way to rescue them and hopefully come up with some way to get something out of this deal that is going wrong, or this uh, scam that is going wrong. We learn that the Hot Prospect, again, that sort of cobbled-together-looking ship, was actually purchased by Slisk, the Trandoshan, uh, who at this point is cleaning it probably for the rest of his life because of his mistake. Uh, he's usually a starship thief, not a starship buyer. He knows nothing about buying a ship and negotiating, so he bought a piece of crap, basically. Um, he does know, however, about the Rap Syndicate, who is the syndicate that's behind Nunk and his operation here, because at least until he realized who he worked for, Slisk briefly worked for the Rap Syndicate. So they come up with a plan to try to save the others. Uh, save needs to be done very soon, or saving needs to be done very soon, because Roland and Jarrell have been tied up and are put inside the top of a tower with this big sort of skylight thing up there, and it's very much like Flashpoint, which is close, um, in that when the sun comes out, it's going to be so bright that it will just incinerate them and destroy them. So the window starts to open, the sunlight starts to come in, and it's supposed to kill Roland and Jarrell, and they're tied up in such a way that they can't get their hands loose to save themselves and this is where Roland, who knows that it seems that Jarrell has some at least minor force sensitivity, starts to really push her, right? Uh, escapees from Flashpoint died in minutes under the noon sun. We have only until the sun clears the edge of the lens, I should think. They drained my jetpack, and I cannot move enough to put any stress on this hook. We're too heavy for it, almost. Too bad one of us isn't Zane or Malik. They could use the force of theirs to break it loose. Perhaps. Perhaps the force is not exclusively theirs. What do you mean? We're not Jedi. Living things are capable of many wonders, Jarrell. You sparred with the Jedi. Perhaps you've learned something more. I can't. I don't even know what to do. I can barely look at... You must. Concentrate, Jarrell. It's no good. I don't have the power. You do. Focus. Burning. Inside and out. Two. Yes. Be what you are. Be what you are meant to be. And at least for a while, that's where we leave it. And it, you, you're left with the question, well, do they die? Or do they not? Because if they survive, it has to be apparently by Jarrell actually using the Force, which is something marginally unexpected in the grand scheme of things here. As for Zane and Griff and Slisk, they bust in on Nunk, basically having Slisk wearing... I guess it's supposed to be like this ruffian raft syndicate look. He kind of looks like a cross between a pilot and a pimp to me. He just gets a cane... <laughs> um, and he'd be good to go, you know, slap some women or something like that. He looks exactly like he's a straight-up straight up pimp, and I don't mean he should be slapping women. I mean uh, he looks like a pimp who sh should be slapping women. He looks like a character you'd see in the background as a human being on Law & Order SVU. No, Sith, it's a pimp named Slithic. <laughs> I just, I wonder what's going on with the knees, though, because, like, 
He's got like these little knee pads that look like they got alien mouths and one's drooling. I'm like, what in the hell is that? <laughs> like Minoc face knees or, yeah, or something like that. That is it. That's it. In, yeah, Minoc mouths. Okay. Thank you. But, you know, okay, the scene with Roland and with Jarrell, that happened to be one of my favorites. I think that for me was probably one of the highlights of this issue. Uh, you know, that moment where it's like, okay, now something marked has changed. In well, Jarell. It- it better be a memorable moment. It's the only moment in this entire arc that matters. <laughs> that too. So they managed to convince Nunk that the rap syndicate is angry with him and that he needs to go talk to the bosses. And he just takes off out of there. And basically our heroes just tell Sipiter, hey, you could do this without all the violence and all the death. You could do this and run this operation in a peaceful way. So go ahead. Sure, man. But where are our friends? Oh, well, yeah, they're probably dead. But no, the door opens. Out comes Jarrell, who is apparently very sweaty, according to Zane, and whose hair and jacket are actually smoking, sizzling. And out comes Roland, whose armor is also sizzling, and they hand him basically a piece of the chain that has been broken, apparently, by Jarrell with the Force. And uh, we basically get this quick little denouement of, okay, well, we're out of here. You know, this scam... Didn't really work. Um, the traders, apparently, though, gave us at least some money because the traders don't care about what's real. They care about what they perceive as real. And our story about Italbos being rich in all these minerals and everything caught on. So people are still buying it. People are just kind of weird. Uh, last month, according to Zane, I was running for my life because of a prophecy someone thought was true. This month, I'm making money based on a forecast everyone involved knows is probably false. Welcome to the business world, partner. We're just getting started. <clears throat> and we get, um, again, the end of this arc that, again, did very little, had art that was very jarring, but did plant the seed of, hey, Jarrell can use the Force. Not, maybe she can, maybe she can't, but if the escape in this issue is any indication, yes, she can. Zane presumably must train her. But we'll find that that's not as easy of a process or easy as of a, a request to be made as one might think it would be. It's not going to be a fait accompli that Zane will teach her. Well, the other thing it does is is it serves the purpose of, of telling us where everyone's been. Uh, you know, we, we know Zane wasn't with him at the beginning, so Zane's been doing something. So now there's this new mystery of, well, what, what is Zane doing? What has he set up? What's been going on? And we also see that while he was doing that, while he's able to come and go about his thing, they're still doing their scamming type missions. And this is just one more in a series of events that they're trying to do. I like the concept of the hot prospect as a ship. Uh, there are a moment where uh, Griff talks about how they haven't even gotten into all the rooms. There's still rooms with standing water and things of that nature. It's a huge ship. It's much bigger than what you would think when you look at it. And I think that the mystery of that ship was something that I found intriguing as well. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess in this sense, like you get the feeling like, they're the crew of Serenity, you know, and they're looking for just job or or any kind of scam, anything to keep the ship flying at this point. Uh, and, and I think that that's one of the things about this overall volume seven that I really appeals to me. You know, it's it, like it, 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 it is a filler episode in a, in a regards, but I feel like everything kind of is pushing the plot in the right direction still. I would argue that it is pushing the plot in the right direction. I would not argue that everything is pushing the plot in the right direction because it feels like you know, maybe 5% of the story is pushing things in the right direction and the other 95% is fluff and filler. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. So here's hoping that the next one will have a little more depth 
to it and not be something that is filler with a tiny bit of seed being planted. Unfortunately, yeah, we're going to get something very similar again. So we move on to issue number 38, which is entitled Faithful Execution. It is a one-shot story, this time with art by Dean Zachary, which is very different uh, in terms of its style, uh, grainier, for lack right. of a better term. Uh, gritty, yeah. Gritty, I guess. It's it's more, for lack of a better term, photorealistic, I guess, than the other. Not that it is in and of itself realistic, but it is more leaning that direction than the cartoony, everyone's face is made of mashed potato style of Bong Dezo. So it is a step up in that direction. And basically at this point, they are traveling through space. And LB, right, the droid that they've had since the beginning, has basically been sitting around dormant ever since all the stuff that had happened back with the Adaskas and whatnot. Uh, uh, and, and the whole Gorman Vandrick, aka Camper thing that had happened. And LB, for the most part, has not been doing much of anything, just kind of sitting there. And Zane is now sort of using him as who to talk to, uh, as, as a, a rational being, so to speak, to be able to hear Zane's thoughts, but they're not really having conversation. So LB's yeah, been He's dormant. a soundboard, you know? Yeah, Everybody's got to have exactly. somebody to stand off and vent to. <laughs> yeah, per- like, found the perfect one. Yeah, you talking to me? You talking to me? Anyway, uh... So they're searching for a missing ship, the Chancellor Fillerine, right? Uh, the, the background is set up very well. It says, uh, Happily oblivious to the pain of their fellow citizens battling Mandalorians on the frontier, the Republic's ultra-rich continue to enjoy traveling through the core worlds in comfort and style. Carrying 30 travelers in luxury, the Chancellor Fillerine, at least that's how I'm pronouncing it, Fillerian, Fillerine, catered to this exclusive class, only to join a less desirable club itself, the ranks of the vessels lost in the core worlds. With ships seldom vanishing in these well-known space lands, searchers first feared piracy, with theories of disaster gaining credence as weeks passed. Still, no one found Falorian. Until Zane Carrick arrived, with partner Griff away doing advanced work on their next job, the hot prospect crew discovered the ship adrift in one of the Corps' countless stellar nurseries, silenced by nebular interference, but otherwise intact. Or so it seemed. And he dun, gets sort dun, of this, dun. as like a missing lost ghost ship, type of mystery episode the type that honestly you see more in star wars role-playing games i guess than you really see usually in star wars uh, traditional storytelling novels comics and mm-hmm. so forth yeah now, i i dug that though because yeah mm-hmm. that was the vibe that i got i'm like oh cool it's like a it's it's a space pirate meets treasure like ooh. but i i gotta admit i was i was kind of going like more delorean and calling it the florian <laughs> it could be i i gotta admit of the three story arcs in this trade paperback, this single issue one is the one that I liked best. Oh, really? Because it's quite a bit darker. It's such a, a different approach to the storytelling than what we're used to getting with Knights of the Old Republic or Star Wars comics of this time. This is much more of a and an almost a Death Troopers vibe that yes. you get out of this. And yes. bear in mind, this is early 2009 when this is coming out. Um, so they hadn't quite gotten to the big zombie craze yet. So the idea of telling a darker, almost horror story in space, particularly with this type of artwork that fits it really well, um, was kind of a surprise, a welcome surprise and a breath of fresh air. It still doesn't feel like it's really connected to much of anything. It only has the most tenuous story arc elements in it. But it is more entertaining, I would argue, than Profit Motive was, easier to follow because Mm -hmm. of the artwork as well. And it's compact, so it does what it needs to do in one issue instead of taking three issues like we're going to see with Dueling Ambitions. So this one's the, the standout for me. Oddly and it, 
and it does it for two characters. I mean, for one issue, we get an aspect into Slissick's character. We see him become brave and then go back to being meek and timid again, and there's a reason for it all. And we see LB finally come out of his shell. I mean, I think that the way the story advances those two plots for those characters along was brilliant. So the idea is that they go aboard, and the ship is basically dead in space, minus a few systems that are actually working. And initially they think that everyone aboard is dead. Everyone seems to have had their throats crushed. And they're not quite sure why. And of course, in Star Wars, you're thinking, you know, this could have been a droid crushing them, could have been a large hulking alien, could have been a force choke, who knows. But it seems like they're dying by having their, their throats crushed. And we meet one survivor and his droid. The droid is Ko, and the survivor is Toki Tolivar, a BIM, meaning he's a little, you know, kind of like dog-slash-rat-looking dude, pretty much. Yeah, That we've Foxy. got there. Yeah, fox-looking. There you go. Fox is probably a better... better. Uh, what did the fox say? Read along for the dialogue. Um, <laughs> and he tells this story of how basically, oh, it was a pleasure trip, but things went wrong. And I was told to hide inside my cabin. And, oh, when I came out, everyone was dead, yada, 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 that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and as the bodies are being sort of cleaned up and packaged up and put into body bags or whatever they can find, essentially, you've got LB actually coming out and helping K.O. do something, which was kind of shocking to see L.B. doing anything. He's finally back up and around doing something. And I found it interesting, knowing where this is going to wind up eventually going with the character of Roland, Roland in quotation marks in this case, because uh, there's been question of his identity for so long. I find it interesting that in this case, Roland is the one making all the medical diagnoses. And it's not mm -hmm. just, well, they were strangled. He's very specific. You know, uh, this one has a blunt laryngeal trauma, etc., etc. Like, he's speaking in medical terms that he claims is just, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's battlefield medicine, he'll say later. But you get yeah. that sense of, oh, he knows more about medicine than we ever thought Roland himself did, which is supposed to be a clue being dumped on us here. Well, and speaking of clues, as he discovers it, you know, you've got Zane going strangled. How's that even possible? We've Found, what, 30 bodies? And the droid behind him, you see the little, ah, attention light. Uh, you know, the lines above his head and his head's got a little white aura. You know, when that first happened, I was like, uh-oh. Watch out for that droid, man. Watch out for that droid. <laughs> I was like, are they telling me something here? That seems too obvious. Ooh, what's going to go down next? But it wasn't what I thought. Yeah, you get this initial, initial sense that they're leaning towards us to, wanting us to believe that the droid is responsible. Um... Speaking of the whole medical thing, we do get a moment that's, that feels like it's straight out of ER or any other medical drama, which is, oh no, yeah. uh, Slisk has been the victim of the most recent choking. He can't breathe, so Roland comes in and does the whole, uh, give him a quick stab to the neck and stick um, uh, the, the fluted end of a flask, basically a little straw-like thing, into his throat so that he can breathe uh, past the obstruction, which I thought was kind of... Uh, it's interesting to see something like that in Star Wars because we're so used to it as a cliche in so many other genres. But yeah. Star Wars very rarely moves towards medical things because it's usually, oh, well, I've got a med pack. Everything is fine. You're perfectly healed with this little Bacta salve that we have or Colto salve that we have. And yet here we actually see a medical procedure, albeit a minor one, that is very reminiscent of what we see in real life. I was impressed by that. Well, and the other angle, too, was like they, they didn't even just leave it to the medical procedure. You know, it's like basic battlefield medicine temporary. But Trenjoshans are resilient. He may survive what would kill another. So it's like, OK, 
he's an alien that happens to have some strong, you know, he's got a stronger throat than most. I mean, that would have killed anyone else. But, oh, okay. Like, I, I like the fact that his species also played a hand in why he happened to live through this, whereas, you know, he should have died. So they're figuring that the droid is who did this, and they wind up going to the droid and cutting his hands off with Zane's lightsaber, only the droid tells the story of what he experienced, and it becomes very obvious that it's actually Toki that's doing the killing. Toki was a Sith adept. This little tiny fox-looking dude was a Sith adept during the Sith War, and now he's basically given up on any resurgence of the Sith, although, dang dude, just wait about seven years and you'd have a Sith resurgent. Um, he's there basically just trying to kill and kill and kill, and he's using force chokes basically to do it. By the time they get back to him, he's trying to force choke Jeriel, or Jeriel, and you get this, another interesting moment that is supposed to seed things in for later. He's trying to force choke her and says, wait, I recognize something in you, but that's impossible. I don't understand, but it makes it all the better. Good riddance too, and then he gets blasted by Zane. We see a brief lightsaber duel between Zane and uh, Toki, until finally the droid Ko who's programmed to protect Toki, decides to protect Toki from himself and just basically grabs him from behind. And it's hard to tell whether it's that the droid is electrocuting him or if Toki is using force lightning and electrocuting them both. But either way, electricity winds up zapping around them and they die. He says, you won't stop me, I'll destroy them all. Uh, the Jedi, the woman, especially the woman. You're like, really? Especially mm -hmm. the woman? And he winds up basically as, as a last move to, to kill the droid, in theory, and to kill Toki. In comes Roland and just blasts the living hell out of both of them to kill them. Uh, oh, I said, believe you. you know, yeah, Roland, you didn't have to kill them. Yes, I did. And if you cannot protect Jarell when I need you to, not when she needs you to, but when I need you to, you're no good to me. Pray to your force that you never learn what that means. And it's kind of a, wait, what? But this <laughs> is what sort of sets the ball rolling, in some respects, towards what's coming. Because Zane goes and talks to LB again. And we start to find out a little bit more about what's happening. And he talks about Roland and Jurel and what's going on. And he says, Roland, I don't understand at all. Back on Flashpoint, he was gruff. Now he's just cold. He even fights differently. Just like he talks, direct, precise, and he's obsessed with protecting Jurel. And Jurel, Toki seemed offended by her existence. She has no idea why, which only reminds me how little I really know about her. Like her force talent. She can't explain that. Or won't. Like I should talk. With what I'm keeping from Griff, he hasn't asked what I did when I was on vacation, but he will. And he won't like it. I don't like not being able to talk. And it's it's an interesting kind of thing here in that it's Zane sort of musing about what's happening, but he's tying the threads together of these things and basically saying, hey, audience, here's these things that are going to be the seeds going forward. Make sure you noticed them. Because yeah. they weren't obvious enough in previous issues, particularly in profit motive. They want to make sure that these are seeds that we recognize have been planted and questions we should be asking ourselves as we go forward. Because they're going to drive the other, what, 11, 12, or whatever it is, issues of this series before it comes to an end prior to that war miniseries. So I, don't, I think this issue, for being a throwaway story, 
in, in many respects. And being a story that's just there to sort of plant some seeds, it went rather well. It was pithy, it was concise, it was efficient, and it was entertaining with, granted, the twists kind of have you going, oh, well, if there was going to be a twist, that's the twist I expected. It still has enough misdirection initially towards the droid that the twist feels like a twist. It doesn't feel like it was a fait accompli that was always going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I got to agree with that. Uh, you know, you mentioned when the little Sith Bim jumps up into the droid. I, I, I truly believe he was throwing the Sith lightning. It looks like if you follow it, it goes back to both of his hands on one of the tendrils. Uh, but one thing I loved about that character's progression at this point is how he goes from looking so innocent to so vicious. I mean, by the time the scene's over and he's whipping out his lightsaber from behind his back, his eyes are glowing at that point. Mm. Up until then, they weren't. You know, he just had this that that fox rodent type look with his eyes, kind of like cat's eyes. But there's this moment where he's like force choking Jarrell and he's letting it all come free when, you know, Zane's like. We got to go over to where they're at. All my life, people like you've been judging me by my size. And it's a good thing, too. If not, I could have never done half of what I did in the Sith War. You see, the Jedi aren't alone in respecting power, regardless of the form it comes in. The Sith do, too. A lowly bim, a Sith adept. In the conference ministry, I was the perfect assassin, but the war ended. Thirty years I waited, but no longer. Now I finish the Republic one citizen at a time. I may not help the Sith rise again, but blessed me, I do enjoy it. I shouldn't have killed here, not knowing how to work the ship, but I couldn't resist. But I understand your ship. It'll do. And that's when he's like, wait, I recognize something in you, but that's impossible. I don't understand, but it makes it all the better. Good riddance, too. And then he gets the blast across the way by Zane. I love the fact that Zane's the one that shoots him at that point. But... I just love the transition of that character. You see later in Legends where they mirror it again when you get to Legacy. Uh, you know, you see them them infiltrating their Sith into the places where no one knows that they're even Sith. They're taking up these jobs and stuff. I mean, we've seen this multiple times in a lot of different aspects throughout the Star Wars saga. But I love the fact that they found another way to tie that in and kept it going. I mean, that's one of those themes that now that we've got a new canon and stuff, I wonder what they're going to do with Sith. I mean, because... The, the Sith, be it in the Old Republic era, the KOTOR era, all the way up into Legacy and stuff, they were always kind of hiding and doing this stuff, seating themselves into positions of power and things of that nature. And now that could all be gone, and the only Sith we ever saw do that could have been Palpatine. So I suppose as we round out this episode, because we are going to split this down the middle, three issues and three issues for two shorter episodes this time to give ourselves a little bit of breathing room here during a very busy summer, um... Uh, I guess if there's a big picture way to look at these three issues, it would be one success, at least in my opinion, one success, one not so successful. Um, a lot of filler, only a little bit of seeds being planted for the future, but we do still have one more story arc, a three-issue arc this time rather than two or one, that could perhaps redeem this particular trade paperback. Right now, it feels like we're at a major slump it seems like, in the, the growth of Knights of the Old Republic. Though I think John Jackson Miller would probably agree. Just in terms of, you know, a lot of stuff has been wrapped up, now he's got to build something else new, and he's back sort of at a foundation point, uh, almost like beginning a new series. Uh, mm -hmm. He still has the banter that's great. Still does the characters very well. Uh, but the scenarios that are being worked with, and the fact that it is back to sort of ground zero, is what makes this a difficult couple of arcs to recommend at least 
the first one. The second one, you know, take it or leave it, I think it's pretty good, but it's certainly not essential in any way. I, I think you nailed it at the beginning when you said that this would make a very good volume two of KOTOR. And I think that that, in a sense, is what we're getting. You know, I mean, it, it was all part of the overall arc, but I think when you're reading this, you do get that vibe. And I think that vibe is purposeful. I mean, you know, we have that jump in time. It definitely left you felt like you were going from one season to a next. Uh, you know, I think it was all planned. Uh, you know, you, you keep going back to the Smirzinski, uh references to Babylon 5 and it's apt. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have watched that series and I did enjoy the hell out of the first five or first four seasons. Uh, the fifth season was the one that I pretend doesn't exist. But yeah, the, the delivery there and the delivery that John Jackson Miller is doing with this series overall are definitely on stride with each other. I mean, they're, they're good storytelling. Uh, yeah, you might have some highs and lows like what you get with the first beginning of this. But I think that the third one, like you, you know, it, it was one of the more powerful ones. I, on the other hand, though, I actually like dueling ambitions. So I, I really like how... It, of the overall, you get the, the idea of the different styles. To me, it started out with the worst one first, and then it went into a better one that was more solid, and then it, it ends out solid. So I, I I really did overall liked Volume 7 in general. I liked the way it went. I didn't feel like it was just fluff. I felt like there was actually some substance in there that, you know, like the whole Jarrell aspect, like if you didn't read this, you'd really have no idea what unlocked her powers and those kind of things. Yeah, they were small moments, but I felt they were integral moments nonetheless. So think of that as a tease, ladies and gentlemen, because next episode, we're covering 39, 40, and 41, Dueling Ambitions, the back half of Volume 7. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you guys have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can also email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you can get a free book. That's right, a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, it's Ben, Mark, and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening in. May the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll be getting crap for negativity this episode. I kind of always say when it's an episode that comes out more negative, don't I? Well, pretty much any time Bungo's been playing with the mashed potatoes.
In this case, I'm sorry, guys, but you're just going to have to sit on your tongues. That's racist. <laughs> We're too heavy. Now that about... Blah, 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 blah,